You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Ever wonder common questions like why mosquitoes bite you more than your sister? Why we don't just wipe out mosquitoes altogether? Or how it is that there's a Lyme disease vaccine for dogs? but not for humans. Or maybe you wonder some off-the-wall questions, like how ticks transmit meat allergies, if eating parasitic worms is ever a good idea, or how stomach botflies manage to breathe as they live deep in the bellies of horses. We hear about diseases, science, and blood-sucking insects in the news all the time. Wouldn't it be nice to have a friend who knows all about this stuff and can answer your normal and wild questions. Well, now you do. I'm Raven Forrest Riscalzo, the host of Tiny Vampires. Every episode is a question from a listener. I tell you about how the scientists discovered the answers to that question and describe how all of it applies to your life. Diseases can be scary. Science can be mysterious and blood-sucking insects can be frustrating. So let's go on a journey to uncover these answers together. Hey, it's a Halloween episode. We can talk about egg batches. It is fearsome in its beauty, just a tiny light at first, ephemeral and spectral, and so distant that you almost miss it. A glimmer on the horizon as you return home. You know the stories. Your parents have warned you since before you could speak, since before you knew your name. Beware the Adza, beware its beautiful light. But how could this tiny light be anything other than wonderful? You have never seen anything like it. Small and delicate, a beautiful firefly, a tiny world of light bobbing before you. You feel yourself reaching for it, 
desperate to touch it, desperate to hold this small universe in your hands. It is your father's hand which stops you. Aged and strong, he takes your hand in his. His eyes are lit by the dancing glow of the firefly. He shakes his head. Beware the Adza, he says. It is past time for you to be indoors. He steers you away from the beautiful light, back to the safety of your home, to the too warm stillness of your kitchen, to the artificial light of your house, to the flicker of a man-made fire. You turn around one last time and catch sight of the firefly, its preternatural light dancing away. You want to protest. You can feel a thousand objections bubbling on your lips. But your father's hand is strong and sure, and he will not be moved. There is a grief which passes through you. It makes you ache for that beautiful light. You eat your dinner and listen to your parents and brothers talk and talk and talk. Their voices are far too loud. Their laughter is grating. You move the food around your plate. Normally you are ravenous, but tonight you can't bear to look at your food. When your brother asks if you're going to finish your dinner, you surrender your plate to him. Your mother asks if you feel well. There is fear in her eyes. You lie and tell her you feel fine. You're just tired. Your father watches you. He knows. He sets out a small bowl filled with coconut water and palm oil. It is his routine. Every evening he leaves this offering for the Adza to keep it from coming into the family's rooms. But tonight it feels like a threat. You settle down for bed early. You have no interest in the ruckus conversations, in the stories your mother spins late into the evening. You want only one thing, to dream. And in those dreams you see that firefly again. Maybe this time to hold that perfect ball of light. You fall asleep to the sound of your mother's voice. Her stories weave a tapestry that snakes its way into your dreams. You aren't sure if you're awake or dreaming anymore. The light is back. At first, it is a dim pinpoint of brightness in the dark room, and you follow it. Careful not to disturb the others who are sleeping, who cannot see what you do. You cross the room. You find the bowl of palm oil and coconut water. You tip it out, watching the contents slosh all over the table. It doesn't hurt. Not at first. The light is so beautiful, and all you want is to be engulfed by it. You don't realize until much later, as you stumble back into your bed, your head light and your limbs heavy, that something is wrong. You feel wrong. You are covered with hundreds of tiny bites. This is death by a thousand small sips. You rest your head on your pillow, you close your eyes, you take a long, shaky breath and dream about that light, that light which beats a tattoo behind your eyes. You hear your mother's voice in your dreams, her desperate sobs. You hear your father's calls, his entreaties for you to open your eyes, and you try. Use every ounce of strength trying to lift your eyelids, but you can't. Your body will not obey you. It remains firmly glued to that far-off flickering light that contains universes that tempts you away from this world and into the next. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. It's also a seasonal episode, if you didn't get that from the cold open. So we're currently in the middle of our Cleopatra and Mark Antony series, and we thought we'd take a break from that and do something a little bit different. We're bringing you a seasonal episode on Halloween, and we are so psyched about this. You guys remember how excited I was about vampires last year? Even more excited this year. How is that possible? Still not done with the vampires. We may never be done with the vampires. There are so many vampires stories to tell. We know that last year we did vampires, and when we did that episode, we realized how deep of a rabbit hole that went, and how much more there was to say. Because of time limitations, we couldn't cover some of the fascinating vampire mythology from outside the Mediterranean world, and we really wanted to. So, we're stepping away from the Greco-Roman world in this episode to bring you some new vampire myths from Asia and Africa. Another thing we noticed last time around was the striking connection between vampire myths and actual diseases, and this was big when we talked about the early 
Uruku, which we're going to recap in a second, but it was there with all the vampires we talked about. And we tried to follow that and link vampire myths to specific diseases, but we didn't really have that knowledge. I remember we were trying to do this for the um, intelligence speech conference presentation, Jen. Jen redid the whole episode for me as a presentation, and it was awesome. I remember looking this up with Jen, and we were trying to figure out if we could maybe make it more disease-focused, and we just kind of got lost and couldn't really figure things out on our own well enough to feel comfortable. Well, that's not our background. And when we don't know something, our default mode is research and ask someone who does. Right. So we brought on someone who does have that knowledge. This week, we're so excited to be joined by Raven Forrest Frascalzo from the Tiny Vampires podcast. So Raven, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So like she said, I'm Raven Forrest Riscalzo. I have a master's degree in vector ecology. That's the study of insects that transmit disease. And I'm a science communicator by profession. And my podcast is called Tiny Vampires. It's about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. Yeah, we were so excited to have you on the show because I just thought when I saw the name of your podcast, Tiny Vampires, I thought this is just the perfect fit for us. It's exactly what we want to talk about. (laughs) And I'm not scared enough of tiny blood-sucking insects. So I was like, please (laughs) make me never sleep again. (laughs) I get accused of that a lot. If you listen to Raven's podcast, I think one of the most recent episodes of yours I listened to was the one on the bot flies in your stomach. Oh, yeah. One of the errands from this podcast will kill you was a guest on my podcast. And we talked about horse bot flies, which actually live in the stomach of horses. So, yeah, it was a pretty gruesome episode. And how they breathe differently because you have I guess you have to breathe differently in the stomach acid. It makes sense, right? Like it wouldn't there wouldn't be a lot of oxygen in there. It was so such a fascinating episode and it's such a fascinating podcast. Highly recommend it. And it's also in Spanish. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I have um, another grad student volunteered to like, translate everything into Spanish. So we have a lot broader reach that way. And it's really cool to, to have access to a lot of the people who are actually exposed to a lot of the tropical diseases. We cover a lot more of the planet this way. That's amazing. So before we get started, we have a few things we feel it's important to bring up because we're talking about myths from some cultures with a history of colonization. And we're aware that a lot of the time mythology comes to us through a Western lens. And that's true in all the regions we've covered. But we're especially aware of this when telling stories from the people of Africa, Asia and other regions of the world where there's a history of Western colonization. We've tried to sidestep the Western lens in our telling, or at least call it out when we see it, but sometimes it's tough to spot. So be aware that some versions of myths that come down to us may have been misunderstood or distorted by Western chroniclers, and we've tried to sidestep the Western lens as best we can. Yeah, and also... We're only telling you one version of these myths. There are other versions. And a lot of times when we tell a narrative that is based in mythology, we have to choose which version we're going to go with. And we're going with that for a specific reason, because it ties in with what we're trying to achieve in this episode. And in this episode, particularly, we want to look at how these myths relate to diseases that people in the ancient world might have been affected with. We should also stop and talk for a minute about whether we're using past or present tense. This is a big deal when we're talking 
writing about indigenous communities that are still around today, especially those with a history of colonization. And sometimes talking about people's beliefs in past tense can feel like an erasure, which is definitely not our intention. Absolutely. But using the present tense is also problematic because sometimes it can be like asserting that everyone in Greece today believes in Zeus. Some people still do, I guess. They absolutely do. And it's also a massive part of their culture and they feel quite attached to it. But we don't really have the authority to say that indigenous people do or don't hold certain ancient beliefs today. Yeah, so we're just going to feel our way through that because we're aware that there are problematic connotations no matter which tense we choose. And we hope we get it right. And we apologize if we don't. So we're going to go back to last year for a little bit, back to 2018, to last year's episode on vampires, when we told you the story of the ancient Babylonian Uruku. This was an ancient vampire in particular that made us think about a link to ancient diseases. So Jenny, hit us with a little refresher. Right. So the Uruku was a resurrected corpse, a person who recently died and returned from the grave as a vampiric spirit. I believe it's about 4000 BC. Yeah, 4000 BC. It's one of the oldest um, vampires. So Urukus were said to be found in deserted areas like graveyards, mountains, or seas. They could look like a lot of things, from a shambolic corpse to an evil gust of wind. And the name Uruku means vampire that attacks man. And we just had to put that detail in again because we really love the history of what names mean. Yeah, etymology. Yeah, as opposed to entomology. Entomology is me. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I have to look that up, but I think it's etymology. Yeah, you're right. People get me mixed up with it all the time. I have to know both. (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to the Uruku, their main MO was to attack while the victim was sleeping. It would sit on the victim's chest and render them completely immobile and helpless as it sucked the life out of them. The victim would become completely incapacitated. They might fall into a coma or catch disease that would spread to the entire family. The ancient Babylonians would make a canopy for the bed of the person suffering from the Uruku possession. They also performed a ritual chant. The Uruku might have been used to explain some diseases that people got that caused them to have low energy, like malaria. This myth could also be used to explain people who suddenly seemed to contract illnesses that made them lethargic, such as medical exhaustion, pernicious anemia, or even some forms of depression. And what we found really interesting about this myth was the canopy, right? The canopy possibly served as protection from insects and other creepy crawlies that attacked in the night and spread disease. And this detail about curing Uruku victims possibly gives us some insight into how ancient Babylonians actually worked to protect their families from disease, or at least that's what we were thinking in the last episode. Yeah, that was that was our logic. I mean, possibly flawed logic. Yeah. So my question is, Raven, what do you see in this myth? I think like malaria is a a fairly decent explanation. So the symptoms for malaria are like fever, chills, sweats, headache, nausea, and mostly general malaise, which is essentially just lethargicness. But ancient Babylon is currently Iraq. So um, I'm not sure, you know, in that desert situation, how often people were actually getting malaria. But, you know, there are those two major rivers that flow through it. So it's really hard to know, like, historically, um, what the presence of malaria really was. I haven't done a whole deep dive on this, but I believe that the climate wasn't always the same climate that it is today. In ancient times, it was like the Fertile Crescent, right? So I imagine it would have been damper. Yeah, and definitely the way that they irrigated their crops and things like that would definitely affect things. Especially when you, you know, back then when people had no idea that malaria was associated with mosquitoes, they might have not even known that mosquitoes were associated with standing water. 
So it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. But I know that in the previous episode, you guys also mentioned something like sleep apnea or sleep paralysis. And that also seems to be a decent explanation. Yeah, we did talk about sleep paralysis in the last one. Jen, should we run down like an explanation of sleep paralysis? Are you talking about the Slenderman sleep paralysis? Right? Slenderman, why? So sleep paralysis, a lot of times the victims feel like there's this presence sitting on their chest, sucking out their life force, where you're caught in between stages of sleep. And sometimes you can even have your eyes open and be dreaming of like a monster or Slenderman in the corner. And you have this horrible feeling of menace, but you can't move or do anything. It's absolutely terrifying. And I know something like this happened to you, Jenny. Yeah, it happens to me periodically. I mean, the last time I had it, was years ago. And that was the Slenderman incident that I told Chen about in the last episode. And it's basically like your body shuts down in sleep so that you don't physically get up and act out your dreams in sleep. And sometimes when you come awake, that system that shuts down your body in sleep doesn't quite dissipate at the right time. So you're lying in bed, you think you're awake, your body's still kind of locked down, and you might still kind of be lucid dreaming and you'll see things and it's it's kind of scary. In my experience, it doesn't last more than like a minute or so. And if you know what's happening, it's kind of interesting if you can get to that point where it's like, oh, I'm having a waking nightmare. This is kind of cool. <laughs> Only you would say this is kind of cool. I would just be crying hysterically. Yeah, if, if you don't realize what's going on, it can be quite scary. Um. Anyway, so where were we going with this? Uh, Raven was saying that it might be um, an explanation for uh, sleep paralysis or sleep apnea. We didn't talk about sleep apnea last time. I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it, Raven. Yeah. Isn't sleep apnea snoring? No. Well, I mean, they're associated, but that's not what sleep apnea is. <laughs> sleep apnea is when you kind of stop breathing while you sleep. So it happens a lot of time to like people with respiratory problems or people who are overweight. So when you're sleeping, you're actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, Raven, your body isn't getting enough oxygen. So you'll hear it a lot of times, like it will sound like people are snoring and then all of a sudden there'll be this quiet and then there'll be a loud... <laughs> Like that, which is them kind of like waking up from it and getting breath in. And as they're sleeping, they're they're definitely not getting enough oxygen because they're not breathing normally. That's why they have those big CPAC machines. So yeah, the the idea of like something sitting on your chest and sucking out your breath, you can kind of see how it would have like a similar feeling. And you can imagine like you wake up and you feel completely exhausted. You're more tired than when you went to bed. And sleep apnea is much more common than sleep paralysis. So you can kind of see how if people were thinking that these Uruku were a more common thing, that it might be, you know, a solid explanation, I guess. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's, it's one of those things that makes you more tired after you wake up than maybe you even were before you went to sleep. So there's a link to the tiredness. The other question that I had was the nets. Yeah. So the bed nets are like the modern bed nets that we have. Uh, I can totally understand where, where you guys were thinking that these, the canopies that they were making. And it's really hard to say like exactly what these canopies might have looked like in Babylon. But modern bed nets, they have to have a really tight weave. And even though they're called nets, it's really more like a fabric. And even then, one of the only reasons why they're super effective today is because they're impregnated with a plant-based insecticide called permethrin. So as soon as the mosquito lands on it, you know, they're they're attracted to the people that are underneath it. And as soon as the mosquito lands on it, it comes in contact with this permethrin and it kills the mosquito. So it's almost like we're making like human-based mosquito traps. 
Oh, that's so fascinating. So that's why modern day bed nets work. I'm not sure that what their technology was, if they would have been able to make a weave that was tight enough. And if, you know, when they describe it as a canopy, it's like it's hard to say unless you actually went to the original translation. Like, what does this fabric actually look like? But yeah, it would have had to have been like fairly tight because mosquitoes are tiny. (laughs) Canopy, when you think about canopies throughout the history of like beds have meant different things. A really good example is when you think about a Christmas carol like Scrooge's bed. He's got those big canopies usually on it. They're like giant curtains and he has that because in England a lot of times it was not very efficient to heat every room in your house so it would be incredibly cold in bedrooms. So having those giant curtains keeps you warm. They're also considered canopies but they had a very different purpose. It wasn't to keep bugs out, it was to keep heat in. So it's difficult to know what they were talking about. Were they talking about a heavy curtain like canopy or were they talking about a net? So what we're going to do now I think is um, we've got some more vampire myths that are not from the previous episode. And what we'd really like to do is read those to you, Raven, and then have you tell us what the disease connection is. We'd like you to diagnose what the diseases might be that the ancient peoples were talking about. Yeah, sounds great. So the Adza is the first one we're going to take a look at. This is a vampiric creature from the Awe, a culture located around Ghana and Togo, which is in Western Africa. So What's cool about the Adza is that it takes the form of a firefly. While in this form, it crawls through keyholes, under doors, and through tiny cracks and openings to sneak into your house where it sucks your blood. In some versions of the myth, it does this with a tiny elephant-like trunk. And there are different versions of this myth that I came across, and one of them is that the Adza's preferred victim is a child, ideally the most beautiful child in the village. They also like to feed on infants. The Adza are known for taking the heart and liver of their victims, but they don't always do this. They don't always completely drain and kill their victim. It may sometimes take a small amount of blood, leaving its victim alive. It can also live on palm oil and coconut water. The Adza can also transform into a human-like being, and in this form, it can possess people. It's said that adults are believed to be possessed by the Adza if the younger children in their family are dying of sickness while the adult survives. There are no preventative measures you can take to protect against an Adza, such as locking your doors or hanging up a net around your bed. What you can do, however, is set a trap for them, baited with coconut water, water and palm oil. Once trapped, an adza will change from its firefly to its human form. In insect form, they are generally invincible, but as a human, they can be killed. However, trapping an adza is dangerous, as they can also shapeshift into a half-human shape where they have fearful talons and will try to eat your organs. I love this so much because I'm just imagining like a tiny little elephant vampire. I know it's not an elephant vampire, but I just, I just, it fascinates me, that little trunk, you know? So Raven, what do you think of this? When I first heard of this, I was really amazed. You know, as a scientist, I'm not really exposed to a lot of mythology. It's amazing how well this lines up with malaria. So to start off with, the description sounds a lot like Anopheles gambiae. It's the mosquito that is the primary transmitter of malaria. The fact that it comes into homes at night and gets in through cracks is really spot on. They are nighttime feeders. The rest of the time they just live in vegetation, usually around human villages. Do they have a tiny elephant-like trunk? 
So if you look up photos of mosquitoes that are actually feeding on a person, you can see that they have multiple mouth parts, basically. They have like a, a more firm mouth part that is basically acts like a straw that pierces into the skin. And then there's a covering over top of that that is more fleshy. So the fleshy part kind of slides back as the straw-like part goes into the skin. And I'm never sleeping again. Yeah. (laughs) So it could kind of look like an elephant's trunk. I imagine there's not a lot of animals that people see on a daily basis that have mouth parts like that. So if you were going to compare it to a mammal, I, I think like that's probably the mammal that we would compare it to. You see like two animals that have a giant proboscis on their face. Like that's not a common arrangement of features, right? It's not really trunk-like in that like an elephant's trunk, they can manipulate it. They can like almost tie it in knots, basically. Where mosquitoes, it's like the inner part is very hard and the outer covering is just to protect it. So yeah, it's basically like because insects are so different than what we experience in normal life. It's like it's hard to describe it in any other way. I mean, like here I'm talking about it like straws and things like that. So, yeah, it's just a matter of like what analogy that you can come up with that people see on like a human scale instead of this tiny little insect scale. Yeah. Another really interesting thing that lines up with this myth is the fact that it kills children mostly. So malaria also mostly kills children. Even today, it's children under five years old that are mostly, unfortunately, victims of malaria. As people get older, they still get malaria, but they're less likely to be killed by it. And you can also kind of imagine once a child in a village dies, you know, everybody has a tendency once people die to kind of honor that person. So you can see how it would be like, oh, that that child was the most beautiful child. Why did we lose this one? It was the most beautiful child. The loss hurt so much, you know, and that part goes into like how it's not the child that turns into the vampires. It's the family members, the adult family members of the child who dies, the depression that takes hold and the emotions behind the loss. You can see how like it's going to drastically change a person's behavior. So that's another kind of interesting tie-in. And maybe like maybe lead to symptoms that seem so markedly different from your ordinary personality that people would build it into the myth in a way. Possibly. We're guessing here. Um, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but... <laughs> right. No, none of us are. Yeah. So the two really most fascinating things to me that just really marks how well this lines up is the part about the liver. So malaria can cause something called mega liver after the mosquito bites you and the plasmodium, which is the parasite that causes malaria, goes through your bloodstream and into your liver where it matures and starts spreading to the rest of your body. Over time, that damages your liver and causes it to enlarge, which the medical term is called mega liver. So the fact that being attacked by this vampire results in like a liver issue is super interesting. And then the coconut water connection is just the part that really blew my mind. Most people don't know, but mosquitoes don't get their energy from blood. So first off, male mosquitoes don't 
bite. A lot of people know that, but they don't think like, oh, well, what are male mosquitoes eating? Is it true that female mosquitoes feed on blood only when they're pregnant? Is that the case? Yes. So basically they need the blood because like you can imagine when you're feeding on nectar, it's basically just water and sugar. So my normal diet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mine too. But when they need to produce the yolk for their eggs, they need fat and they need protein. So that's when they're actually seeking a blood meal. So they can't, at least Anopheles gambiae, <laughs> the malaria transmitting mosquito, can't produce eggs without feeding on blood first. Okay. Mosquitoes are plant feeders. They feed on nectar just like butterflies and other pollinators. And so something like leaving out coconut water, mosquitoes would actually come and feed on that. And you could totally see how a mosquito would land in that. And, you know, it's just a bowl full of coconut water. It would sometimes get trapped and drown. So this being an effective deterrent might actually have worked. It seems like the people, like the culture that this myth comes from, these people like really were on the entire life cycle of malaria and mosquitoes. Yeah, it's not complete, but it's a lot better than anything most people (laughs) knew at that time point. We don't know the age of this myth, but Europeans discovered that malaria was transmitted by mosquitoes in 1897. The museum that I work at was built before this was figured out. So (laughs) this is like really new information to Europeans. So it's fairly likely that this myth is much older than that. So it seems like, you know, just by paying attention, the people in this culture basically had figured out how malaria worked without knowing about the parasite, without necessarily understanding mosquitoes. This is like extremely observant of nature and their own environment. Right. And they they essentially figured out how it all worked. And instead of describing it in scientific terms, the way that like Europeans might, they built it into mythology, which is the way that lots of people do it around the world. And instead of like sitting your child down and explaining in scientific terms how malaria is transmitted or like how getting bit by mosquitoes will make you sick and possibly kill you, it's easier to like create this myth and then everybody just follows this myth and you know that might actually result in a lower infection rate possibly i mean i guess putting out the um the palm oil and the coconut water might distract some mosquitoes from coming into your bedroom right well actually my master's thesis was on the fact that a lot of plant smells essentially are more attractive to mosquitoes than human smells for most of their life. Because if you think about it, like how often do you need energy versus how often is the female mosquito going to need blood? So a wild mosquito is going to need human blood roughly three times in her life. She's going to need to feed on plants her entire life, like her entire adult life, I should say. How long is that usually? How long does a mosquito live? (laughs) That's a trickier question. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I opened up a rabbit hole. (laughs) I mean, in my nightmares, they live forever and never stop sucking my blood. So the cold open is really just my nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Jen's over in the corner twitching right now. A little bit. I've actually Googled what it looks like when they feed and that's it. I'm done. (laughs) You broke me. (laughs) Well, we're real early in this episode, Jen. I mean, 
fuck up, kiddo. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I mean, that kind of gets to, like, when you were talking about how in the insect form they were invincible. There's thousands and thousands of mosquitoes. Like, no matter how many you squish, it seems like they never stop coming. They, they seem to be invincible, but, like, human form, humans can easily be killed. But, like, mosquitoes seem to just go on forever. Yes, that's another part of the myth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard to know how long a wild mosquito lives. It's not like we can put a tag on them like you could with like a rhino or something. I mean, they've tried to do catch and release studies with mosquitoes, but but yeah, they're so small. It's it's really difficult to know like exactly how long they live. Do mosquitoes die of old age? Yeah, in the lab, they certainly do. There's There's really no way to know. You can imagine, like, being an insect. It's a pretty treacherous life. Uh, <laughs> basically, their goal is to just get one batch of eggs out because, you know, there's, like, hundreds of mosquitoes born out of just one batch. Egg batches. Hey, it's a Halloween episode. We can talk about egg batches. Can I just ask, do mosquitoes actually hibernate? Hibernate is a very specific biological term. <laughs> um, but yes, a lot of them stay alive over the winter in egg form. But yeah, some actually manage to, like adults, they go like underneath a bark and stuff like that, and they just stay alive all winter. That's why certain mosquitoes, like, they come out super early, like, basically as soon as, like, the very first anywhere near close to warm day, they're, like, out like crazy because they actually stayed adults all winter long not feeding. And this is all just super fascinating to me because I did not know this about mosquitoes at all, but what really fascinates me here is all the tie-ins to this myth. And as an entomologist or as, you know, a scientist researching malaria, how frequent is it for people to go to indigenous communities that have lived with these diseases for centuries and talk to them about their mythology? I think it's becoming more common. So before when we were researching mosquito-borne diseases, it was this idea that they call them flying syringes. Basically, um, it's like just dirty needles. That's all they thought of them as. And now we're understanding them. We're getting more of an idea of like a more holistic picture, understanding their ecology, understanding their interactions with humans, plants, other animals. So now it's much more common for disease ecologists to go out with anthropologists and be much more integrated into the community. A lot of times when they're doing research, the local community is part of that research. And there's been a lot more of a push for that. But this is definitely new. Like, this is, like, the current generation of scientists. Before, mostly, like, any kind of indigenous knowledge was pretty much ignored. It was, like, the white savior idea where it's, like, we're just going to come in and we're going to save you <laughs> from your diseases and not so much listening. It's definitely something that people need to be paying more attention to and needs more funding. You can understand how taking the time to, like, sit down with the local community and really talk to them about their mythology, how a health organization would see that as frivolous. It's like, we're trying to save lives here. Why are you talking about myths? But the interesting thing is that, you know, I don't know how old the azimuth is, but it doesn't have to be that old to predate our understanding of malaria as connected to mosquitoes. And think about how many more lives could have been saved if Western researchers had listened to these myths and this ancient knowledge, you know? 
Right, right. Just like respected the local community enough to like sit down and and talk with them and find out what they knew. And that's definitely something that is necessary and unfortunately isn't isn't done enough. And and honestly, like who knows, we could have eradicated malaria by now if we had actually listened to people instead of enslaving them. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, listeners. This is Ann Bogle, author, blogger, and creator of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Since 2016, I've been helping readers bring more joy and delight into their reading lives. Every week, I tech all things books and reading with a guest and guide them in discovering their next read. They share three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And I recommend three titles they may enjoy reading next. Guests have said our conversations are like therapy, troubleshooting issues that have plagued their reading lives for years and possibly the rest of their lives as well. And of course, recommending books that meet the moment, whether they are looking for deep introspection to spur or encourage a life change or a frothy page turner to help them escape the stresses of work, school, everything. You'll learn something about yourself as a reader and you'll definitely walk away confident to choose your next read with a whole list of new books and authors to try. So join us each Tuesday for What Should I Read Next? Subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast and visit our website, whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com to find out more. So let's move on to the next vampire myth. Yeah. Okay, so the next one we've got for you is the Obaifo. And this is a vampire-like creature from Ashanti mythology, and the Ashanti people also live around Ghana in West Africa. And they take the form of a human being during the day and are hard to identify except for their uh, quote-unquote shifty eyes and their obsession with food, especially meat. Obaifo are always hungry. Their saliva is also said to be poisonous. Obaifo typically inhabit the bodies of regular people during the daytime. Anyone, your friend, your spouse, your neighbor, could be harboring an obeifu. At night, the obeifu leave their bodies and fly around in corporeal form, glowing from their armpits and anus. I mean, that is my favorite detail of this episode. That's what I wanted to include this for. I love the part about the glowing from the anus and armpits. <laughs> 
In this form, they attack and drain the blood of children, which causes a slow, very painful death. They can also feed on crops, which causes blight and can live off the sap from plants if they don't have access to the blood of children. People who were sometimes believed to be an obeifo if they did certain deeds considered to be antisocial, such as exhibiting jealousy towards other people or refusing to offer food to strangers. If your child died, you might also be suspected of being an obeifo. The only protection against the obeifo is the okomfo, a kind of white witch who uses charms and spells to drive the creature off. So the immediate thing that I'm seeing here with this one is, um, once again, there's an ability to feed on plants and um, a targeting of children. And I'm wondering if there's a parallel that you see there, Raven, and what else you see in this myth. Aside from the malaria thing, what I kind of attach to is the same thing you guys kind of attach to, which is the armpits and anus thing. How could you not? Yeah. Um, so also the shifty eyes. The connection here is a little bit more tenuous. I mean, it doesn't get a, as spot on as the previous myth. I don't think we're going to find anything that perfectly aligned. Maybe we will, but that's a really lucky one. Yeah, I would. that was incredible. Um so uh, the connection that I see here is with vitiligo, which is a skin condition where people lose pigment in different parts of their skin. This is especially happens when with places that get um, more friction than other parts of the body. So the armpits, right? Right, exactly. You can see how like as somebody like swings their arm or rubs against their clothes, that armpits would be an area where this would happen. This condition has a lot lot of stigma behind it, especially in Africa. And you can see how that would be true. People with darker skin, an area that's completely white, almost like a, a patch of albinism. It's much more dramatic than if you already have really light skin. So the stigma behind it is, even today, really a big deal. The Changemakers is an organization that's actually like trying to fight this stigma today. And they actually have created very recently a series of commercials about what vitiligo is and how it's not contagious. It's people aren't sick. All it is is skin pigment differences. If we can find those commercials, we'll put one in the show notes so people can see it. Yeah, definitely. So you can see how people would be afraid when they see somebody that looks different and kind of shun them in the community. The other thing is that vitiligo is associated with um, nystigmus, which is a condition where your eyes, the nerves in your eyes cause the muscles to contract a lot. So your eyes kind of shift back and forth in your head. So that's like the other connection here. But a lot of it mostly I see would be more of like a social thing saying, you know, people are taking more than they're due, they're, they're eating too much, that sort of thing. Whenever people are trying to stigmatize a group, you know, humans in general will often say, oh, they steal children, they kill children, they are obsessed with food, they eat more than they should. That's a, a, a human thing that people do when they're trying to create an outgroup. So yeah, the, the connection's a little more tenuous, but it's it's definitely there. We might be cherry picking things, you know, with this one, but it's still really fascinating to me the connections that are there that we would never have found on our own, like the shifty eyes. Yeah. So like, is this a disease? I didn't ask this question, but is this a disease that makes you lose control of, of the direction that your eyes are going in? Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated than that. So essentially what's happening is the muscles that control the eye 
are uh, effectively twitching. It depends on how severe the nystagmus is, but your brain translates so much of what you see. What your eyes are actually perceiving is very different after your brain has processed that information. A lot of what you see, your brain is actually making up based on other information. It's just a spooky idea that is true. This is like a thing that blows my mind. Like, what I'm seeing isn't real. Well, all of reality is subjective. Your experience of the world is not the same as anyone else's experience of the world. Let's get into philosophy, guys. Yeah. Diseases aren't enough. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't gone down enough rabbit holes. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm sorry. I binged The Good Place ahead of the new season. And now I'm like, all I want to do is talk about moral philosophy. Nystigmus <laughs> right into nihilism. All roads lead to nihilism. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so you're, if you have nystigmus, your perception, like I said, there's varying levels of it, but for the most part, people's brains will edit it out and they basically see like a normal person sees. But there are cases where it's, it shifts so badly that it's, it's very disorienting for people and um, they have balance issues. Well, depth perception would all be off, wouldn't it? Even just moving, if your eyes aren't perceiving what's in front of you properly, like you're, you're going to have a lot of depth perception issues. Right. And, and that can also affect balance and movement, I'm assuming. Well, that's more if one eye works differently than the other. What you would be experiencing is that, uh, this is a real rabbit hole. Um, so, uh, <laughs> it's the name of our podcast. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so essentially human balance works in two different ways. Uh, so you have the fluid that's in your ears and you also have your vision. So your eyes are constantly looking for a horizon. And um, so this is essentially where motion sickness comes from, is when what your eyes are perceiving and what your ears are perceiving are two different things. So that makes you feel off kilter. So say like when you get out of an elevator, the fluid in your ears are doing something different than the levelness that your eyes are seeing. So you can imagine that if your eyes are moving in a drastic and erratic manner, that your brain would be perceiving that as you moving and and your ears would not be perceiving that as you're moving. So that disconnect would cause an unsteady gait. So just to bring it back a little bit to what we were talking about, um, the nystigmas, people having nystigmas, um, is this a part of the experience, I guess is my question. It depends on how bad the nystigmas is. So say like a subset of people with vitiligo have this condition with their eyes, and it would be an even lower percentage that would have the nystigmas so bad that it would affect their balance. It's definitely not anywhere near a one-to-one. -one. Like shambling and stuff is not really part of this myth. It's not, but it's part of the vampire myth in general. And I was kind of wondering if there was a connection there. And it sounds like there might be, but it's pretty tenuous. The connection to vitiligo is so thin to begin with. And then it's like such a small subset of people with vitiligo that it's like, uh... <laughs> So let's move on to the um, the Chinese hopping vampire. And this one is pronounced, um, I've actually heard it pronounced two ways, Xiong Shi and Xiong Shu. 
And so we had to pick one. Um, I'm going to go with Jiangsha. And I probably should have said this at the beginning, but probably I have mispronounced a lot of things. We apologize. Sometimes we're guessing. Sometimes we're not guessing. We're doing our best here. So Jiangsha. And you know what, Jenny? This was the vampire that I was so good at I couldn't fit into our last episode. Glenn and I talked about it so much. That's my husband. And he was like, I can't believe you left that one out. This is for Jen's husband and for anyone else who was disappointed that we did not talk about this before. I agree. It's an awesome myth. The Jiangsha is a type of vampire that's depicted in Chinese folklore as a stiff corpse that moves around by hopping with its arms outstretched like a zombie. The Jiangsha is active mainly at night. During the day, it hides in a dark place like a cave or a coffin. Sometimes the Jiangsha is depicted as looking more or less like a living human, except for the stiffness and the hopping and the zombie arms. And sometimes it's depicted with sharp teeth and long nails and glowing a phosphorescent green. In some versions, it's badly decomposed. There's a clear connection with actual corpses and the decomposition process here. As part of the decomposition process, flesh sometimes draws back from the teeth and nails, making them look longer. And sometimes hair and nails appear to grow for a while after death. Also, there's a connection between the Xiangsha's movements and rigor mortis. It's also said that they have greenish-white fuzzy skin, and the color might be linked to mold seen grown on corpses. There are different ways of describing this creature, depending on uh, the version of the myth that you're looking at, and some are more obviously connected to actual decomposition than others. The original vampires before like the 1800s and Bram Stoker and the romanticization of vampires is like a reanimated corpse. There's a lot of parallels between the zombie myth and the vampire myth, you know, like our Western understanding of those things. And some cultures combine them really differently. I feel like in Western culture, we basically took these two aspects of, of this, this undead creature and split them. So we have like the sexy hot vampire and we have the shambly corpse and they're two different things. But some cultures combine those two things differently. Until Bram Stoker most even in Western cultures, vampires were just the shambling, ugly thing. That also sucked your blood. There's actually a real historical connection here that might give us a hint as to the origins of this myth, which go back to the Qing Dynasty, which went from 1622 to 1912 AD. People in Qing Dynasty China were very mobile for a number of reasons. This was a time of huge population expansion. The population grew from 150 million to more than 300 million. This was mainly because New World crops like sweet potatoes, corn, and peanuts could support larger populations growth than just rice and wheat, which were the dominant crops before. There was a long period of peace and stability in the 18th century, which led to increased trade. Commercialization expanded, and with it came increased urbanization, with people moving from small towns to bigger cities to take advantage of new opportunities. And that's just really scratching the surface. I don't want to go down necessarily a massive rabbit hole here, but suffice it to say that there are a lot of overlapping, interconnected factors that led to what some call an internal diaspora of people inside China during parts of the Qing dynasty. The population was growing, the economy was expanding, and people were traveling widely to take part in this growth. But there was still a strong traditional belief that it was important to be buried in your home village. So during this time, people in China who died far from their homes were often transported back to their home villages for burial. The need for this was great enough that the corpse driver profession arose. People who specialized in transporting corpses back to their hometowns for burial. The corpses were often tied upright in single file on bamboo poles carried on the shoulders of two corpse drivers. Bamboo poles were bending and as the men traveled, it sometimes looked like corpses were bouncing or hopping. So I just have to pause here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't because I I know where you're going. (laughs) So I have heard and read different versions of this myth where actually it was just one corpse transported on a bamboo pole inside of a coffin. And I have also read a version where it was these, you know, lines of corpses tied to these poles. And 
I just have to say that this is a really awkward way to transport a corpse. That sounds really hellish. Like, if you have to be the person to tie a bunch of dead bodies to some bamboo poles that are bendy and, like, transport them that way. I guess it depends on their death culture and what you could and couldn't touch on a dead body. I was reading a book earlier this year that was about Chernobyl, and it was talking about the customs of the people of Belarus. And it's quite similar to the customs that we're seeing here. If you died away from home, which a lot of people after the Chernobyl explosion did, you had to be buried on your family's door. So one of the stories I was reading, it was a book called Voices from Chernobyl, was about this guy who went back into the exclusion zone of Chernobyl to get his family's radiated door to lay his father out on it because he was dying of radiation poisoning. So these death cultures about like getting your family home, getting these corpses back to the village they came from, they're really something that's deeply embedded in the culture. It is a really weird way to get your corpses home. And what I'm trying to say is that it is that important to people when they are saying goodbye to their dad to make sure that they are honored in a way that their culture feels right. Yeah. And like, this might be the cheapest way. Like if you can't afford a cart, if you can't afford people to carry just one body in a coffin, or you can't even afford a coffin, this might be like the cheapest way to do it, even if it's not the most efficient way, maybe. So anyway, corpse drivers usually moved at night to avoid people seeing the bodies because seeing a dead body was generally considered bad luck. This may have fed into the myth where the corpse was only active at night. Priests with bells usually walked ahead of the corpse drivers to further warn the living that they were coming. I mean, what a job. So interestingly enough, one thing about the Jiangsha is that they always wear Qing Dynasty era clothing, even if they didn't die in that era. So it's really connected to this period in history. When a Jiangsha attacks you, you may not realize they're doing it. And there are some versions of this myth where the Jiangsha physically do suck your blood. But in the older and more authentic version, not influenced by Western vampire myths, the Jiangsha just sucks your qi or life force. You'll become tired and lethargic for no discernible reason. Eventually you'll die and may become a Jiangsha yourself afterward. And this is sometimes referred to as being infected with the Jiangsha virus. I think that's more in, in like modern accounts of this myth. There are lots of ways to thwart a Jiangsha. They are said not to like their own reflection. So holding up a mirror to one might send it running. Other things they don't like include... The urine of a virgin or the blood of a black dog. You can throw these at a Jiangsha like you would holy water on a Western vampire grains of rice, you can drop rice on the ground and Jiangsha would have to stop and count it, giving you time to escape. I feel like the stopping and counting, like the count on Sesame Street, it always makes me think of that. You see it a lot in Eastern European vampire myths that are around this time, if not a little bit later. There's a lot of stopping to pick up grains of rice or sand or salt. A lot of times it's they have to count all the grains of salt. And this became really popularized because this is when it was codifying that vampires come out at night. So if you put this outside your window, they had to stop and count all of it so you can have a good night's sleep. That's fascinating. Because the sun would come up. Right. So you can also stun the Jiangsha by attaching a piece of yellow paper to the head, which contains a spell that freezes them in place. So that's the Jiangsha. And um, Raven, what do you hear in this myth? It seems a lot like, actually, the explanation for a lot of Western vampires, which is tuberculosis. So tuberculosis symptoms are coughing up blood, which would look like you were feeding on blood, chest pain, having difficulty breathing, weight loss for no seeming reason. That's why it's also called consumption, being really tired, having low body heat. So like if somebody would touch you, you would feel cold, you would feel like a corpse. I wonder if that's tied into um, the sense of having your chi sucked out of you. 
Right, right. So, you know, you're you're constantly fatigued, you're laying in bed, you're wasting away for seemingly no reason. And you're physically cold to the touch. Right, right. So, um, and then they're, they have a loss of appetite, but they also have blood on their lips. So, but that's really interesting. Because that's where these two myths really intersect. Western and Eastern. Western and Eastern. And it's also where we start to see, like I was saying before, that codification of vampires come out at night and counting rice or counting salt or whatever that stopped them from attacking you. So the other thing that I feel like is really important to point out here, though, is that the tuberculosis connection is not a Western imposed thing on this culture because there's a strain of tuberculosis that is endemic to China. Right, Raven? Yeah. Um, so tuberculosis is um, caused by a bacteria and there's a strain that is endemic to China and it was there for a thousand years, but it just happened to reach its peak in the 18th century, which was the height of the Qing dynasty in China. That's the other really interesting connection to this myth is this idea of something slowly and invisibly eating you alive at the same time as tuberculosis was at its height. And then even if people didn't die in this era, that if you die in this way that you're associated with this era and so you're wearing the era's clothes, it's almost like a signifier that you died of tuberculosis. It reminds me of like, you know, there's clothes that we associate with the Black Plague. The plague is around even today. But when we talk about the plague, we have this image in our head and people are wearing the the clothes of that era, right? Oh, yeah. They're wearing those plague um, beak masks, aren't they? Plague masks. Right. So it's like it's associated with England and it's associated with this like specific era and the specific clothing. But of course, like the plague was around long before that and long after that. But that's really when it broke out. So that's like the association that we make. It seems like because this was such a big medical issue at this time that there's like this connection, like a mental and cultural connection to this condition and that era. I wonder if the tuberculosis was made worse by the movement. The movement of people, I mean, even today, you know, when you're moving around a lot, your immune system takes a hit and you're less likely to fight off diseases and you're also being exposed to new people and people that are likely to have conditions that your immune system's never been in contact before. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's not that different from from today. You know, people get sick after going on vacation all the time. So certainly like movement, it can certainly impact epidemics, but it's it's really hard to say to make a one-to-one connection over whether the movement and the expansion of the population was actually the cause of this this massive epidemic. There are so many um, complicating factors when it comes to disease transmission. And then especially when you're looking backwards in time, it's not like you can like track things back to patient zero in the same way that we do when epidemiologists are tracking diseases today. There's such a temptation, especially I think for storytellers like me and Jen, but like for everybody, you know, to find a neat story that you can wrap up in a bow and say, yes, this is why. And that's not necessarily the case. And that's certainly not the case, you know, with mythology either, but it's just interesting to find these parallels. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we really love is that intersection of story and history and science. And I feel like when we had this opportunity to talk to you, it was it was amazing because we were like, oh, my God, we get to tell all three at the same time. And for once, we're not guessing about one of those elements. 
Oh, for sure. Diseases are especially complicated, but I mean, it's it almost certainly was a factor. Um, but like how much of a factor is is a question, because like especially when you have a bacteria, it's hard to say if like maybe the bacteria mutated and became more transmissible in this time period. So it's like it might not have had anything to do with it, you know, but like I said, there's a lot of things that could have been impacting the way that the disease was moving around. But it's interesting that the idea of something sucking someone's blood or or their chi, their like life force, how the connection between tuberculosis and vampires is so clear, even in very different cultures. And it seems like the mystery, I guess, behind tuberculosis itself has like this just really interesting tendency to create mythology. Well, that's such an interesting point, you know, because like that that was kind of what we were trying to get at in this whole episode is like what diseases are the engines of myth? And like just in terms of looking at things from a non-Western, non-scientific lens, like how did people see disease and explain disease to themselves and other people, which I, I just find that so interesting. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting for me because like I was talking about before, like indigenous knowledge is so important, but is also something that, you know, when you're getting into like the molecular biology of a pathogen and you're trying to save lives, it's like there's so much in your brain already (laughs) that it's hard to get a chance to like take the time and dive into the mythology of like the cultures that you're interacting with. So, yeah, it's like it's definitely an interesting opportunity to get like a different perspective on the same things that you like research every day. So that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks. We're going to be picking up the next installment of the Cleopatra and Mark Antony Lovers in a Dangerous Time series. And hopefully you have heard enough creepy vampire stories to make you have maybe some sleepless nights. I mean, I'm definitely not going to sleep after actually looking at how a mosquito feeds, which we will probably put in the show notes because I'm going to insist on it. And this episode actually drops on Halloween. So you're welcome. (laughs) I think we do have some Patreon supporters to shout out in this episode, right, Jen? We've got a couple of Patreon members to shout out in this episode. Thank you, guys. We're so grateful for your support. Krista Taubert. And Jonathan Koros. Thank you so much. We apologize if we mispronounced anyone's name. We hope we didn't. And we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Yeah. Usually what we do in this section is um, we promote our social media and we promote our Patreon. But we also felt like we'd like to promote some organizations, some research organizations that are doing some really important work in the areas that we just talked about myths for. So, um, Raven, what are some organizations that you'd like our audience to know about? Yeah, the Against Malaria Foundation provides insecticide-treated bed nets, the ones that we were talking about earlier in the episode. Each net costs about $2, and it's pretty effective in protecting sleeping kiddos for about four years. The nets are distributed to multiple countries in Africa, including Ghana, which is the source of the myth. Thank you so much, Raven, for being on this episode. Can you tell us where people can find you and where they can find your podcast? Yeah. Um, so tinyvampires.com is my website and I'm Tiny Vampires Pod on Twitter and also Facebook. And if you want more Halloween stuff, I'm part of a podcast network called Agora. And every year we get together and we each do like a Halloween episode. So that is on the Agora podcast feed. And mine is about the Jewel Wasp 
and the American cockroach. I don't know if you guys know about this. I do. (laughs) It's horrifying. I don't. Tell me. Yeah, so the jewel wasp is a parasite or a parasitoid of cockroaches. And the episode is, it's called Hollow. And it's basically being parasitized by a jewel wasp from the cockroach's perspective. Wow. (laughs) So you're writing a first person narrative perspective of this process. Yeah, it's very dark and creepy, and I love it. I, I am so into this. Like, this is so interesting. It like eats the least vital things first so that the cockroach stays alive as long as possible until like it it finally dies. And that's when the wasp pupates. And it's all scientifically accurate. (laughs) Oh, and I'm never, never sleeping again. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'll send you guys a link. It comes out on the 18th, so it'll be out before um, this episode comes out. Yeah, this is actually going to come out. This comes out right on Halloween. And um, so you basically did two Halloween episodes, which is super ambitious. Uh, plus my regular episodes. Yeah, and I'm giving a talk at Harvard next week. Holy cow, you are busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's been a crazy month. Well, we're lucky we got you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on this show. And um, thank you so much to everybody who listened. Thank you for listening. And uh, we will see you guys in two weeks. Bye.